Okay, we're going to continue just in our, our study through Genesis then. Uh, we've come as far as chapter 36. We've kind of really got to the end of the, the chapters that deal with the life of Jacob. Um, and we're going to move now into what really is the best way of describing is the generations of Esau, Jacob's brother. Um, and this is one of those chapters that if you're reading through the Bible, you get to this and you kind of go, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can skip over the names because there's loads of names in this list. And it kind of, it's almost one of those chapters that you kind of think, well, why did God put that there? But, you know, God has placed everything in Scripture for a reason, for a purpose. Uh, and there's a lot that we're going to see as we go through this chapter. Um, so we start beginning of chapter 36, verse 1. Now, these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. So the name Esau, Edom, synonymous. Um, again, Esau, you remember, um, was kind of this red-haired individual. Um, and Edom, again, um, the area around uh, Edom, the rocks there are reddish in color as well. Um, so there's this kind of red theme that seems to run through this. Um, but Esau then, we're told, took his wives of the daughters of Canaan. Now, you remember, that had been a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to send Jacob away, because they didn't want Jacob marrying into this local uh, community, uh, the people of the land of Canaan. Um, they understood what Abraham had passed down to them, that God had wanted Abraham to come out from among his people, to separate from those people, and to remain separate. Jacob, we've seen, again, separating from Laban, getting back into the land, and remaining separate from the peoples of the land. Well, last time we looked at that dreadful situation that occurs in Shechem. But, you know, God had engineered and allowed you know, the result of all of that so that they would stay separate from the people of the land. Of course, Esau doesn't do that. Esau takes wives of the daughters of Canaan. And we're given the names of them. So, first of all, uh, we're told here that we've got Adar, uh, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, uh, the daughter of uh, Zivian the Hivite, and Bashimath, Ishmael's daughter, uh, sister of Nebajoth. Okay, so just trying to make it easy for you, let's uh, look at these names. So we've got those three wives that Esau takes to himself. Um, now, uh, Ada means ornament, that's a pretty name. Uh, Aholibama, tent of the high place. But that's nothing to do with God and the high places of, uh, that have been used for worship for God. Uh, this was a pagan thing. Uh, and then uh, Bashamath means fa- fragrant spice. Um, so for what it's worth, those are what those names actually mean. And we go on. Uh, and Adar bore Esau Eliphaz. Okay, so we try and make this easy to just go together. Um, and Bashamath uh, bear Ruel. And Aholibama bear Jew, uh, sorry, yes, Jaelish. Uh, and Jalem and Korah. So these three sons come from Aholibama. And these are the sons of Esau which were born unto him in the land of Canaan. Um, Eliphaz means God of gold. Straight away you see there that um, the, the focus was not upon God himself, but on other things, material pursuits. Um, Ruel means friend of God, uh, which is not a bad name to have, is it, Ruel? It's a nice name. Um, Jewish uh, means hasty. Uh, Jalem means concealed, and Korah means pull hair out. We've all probably had children at times, uh, those that have had children that have uh, wondered whether we should call them that. Uh, Korah, pull hair out. You pull my hair out, child. Uh, so, and uh, there's certainly two, uh, two mums in the fellowship and dads that are, are contemplating names for their, their next children. Uh, and we have lots, lots of names this morning, so there's just a few there that we could pick from maybe. We may even rename, rename some of our existing children. <laughs> 
according to those. So, uh, verse 6, And Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his house and his cattle and all his beasts and all his substance which he had got in the land of Canaan and went into the country from the face of his brother Jacob. So he kind of moves out of the land of Canaan. And remember, Canaan is the land that God has promised to Jacob. And for their riches were more than they might dwell together. And the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. Just a note there, he's saying that the land wherein they were strangers, Jacob is still a stranger in this land at this time. And they will remain strangers up until the time they come back, uh, Jacob and his descendants and the, the brothers and so on, after they've come back from that time down in Egypt. Then they will come back and under Joshua, the land will become theirs. For the whole of this period of time, they are, as it were, strangers in the land. The land is promised to them, but they haven't yet received it. Okay? Uh, and again, told that the, the land couldn't bear them because of all their cattle. And thus, uh, Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. So the land and the area particularly we're looking at, uh, where Jacob is now dwelling, is this area from Mamre, where we've seen already a number of times, all the way down through uh, Beersheba, almost as far down as Kadesh. That's the, the kind of territory that Jacob is, is dwelling in. Um, and then Edom, just kind of on the other side uh, of the Jordan, just across from the, through the Dead Sea, uh, in that area, uh, just south, uh, sort of southeast of, of where Israel is. So, so these are the, the wives, you can see them on the screen, uh, and these are their sons. And we're told that these are the names of Esau's sons. So Eliphaz, the son of Adar, the wife of Esau, ruled the son of Bashemath, uh, the wife of Esau and the sons of Eliphaz were, now we're going to get Eliphaz's children here, so we're told we've got Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. They're some great names for children, aren't they? Um, so there's ones we could add to our list uh, to consider. And we go through, now it's just as an aside here, I think it's interesting because you've got Eliphaz and from him comes Timon and from Timon come the Timonites, uh, which you probably have not ever thought about or considered before, but when we go to the book of Job, we find there that Job's three friends and so on, and the one highlighted there, Eliphaz the Temanite. Now, it could be, and from a date chronological point of view, it could be one and the same. This could be Eliphaz who seems to adopt the name of his son in terms of the geographical region that he ends up living. Um, so it may well be, because Job certainly would have lived somewhere around this time. Um, so just a possibility, nothing that we're, we're setting in stone, but just a thought. Certainly we're told that Eliphaz was a team, and the team we've just seen was one of the sons uh, of Eliphaz. So, just a, a little aside. And then we go on and we're told, uh, and Tima was a concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. And these are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. So, um, we find that Amalek, who we read about so much in Scripture, the Amalekites, come from this group. So, although this is one of those kind of tedious chapters to read through. When we study it, we see lots of interesting things start to come out. Now, first we meet the Amalekites when uh, the Israelites come out of Egypt, when they cross over the Red Sea, and they're confronted by the Amalekites. Now, it's interesting because the Israelites seemingly collect all the weapons and the things that the uh, Egyptians who drowned in the Red Sea, the, the weapons and the things washed up on the shore, uh, and suddenly they find themselves armed and ready to, to face this battle with the Amalekites, and God gives Israel victory on that particular occasion. Uh, we find again, we see them in Numbers 14, in the book of Judges, a number of times they occur. Uh, in the book of Samuel they occur, because uh, Agag, the king uh, of the Amalekites, at that point is highlighted, um, and one of Agag's descendants 
Because if you remember, Samuel is cross with Saul because Saul was given the instruction to wipe out the Amalekites. And Saul doesn't do it. It's one of those interesting things in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel arrives and says to Saul, basically, you know, have you done what I asked you to do? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's all done. And with this kind of, kind of, quite a humorous line as Samuel says, so what's the bleating of the sheep that I can hear? Sheep in the background, meh. And Saul going, shh, shh. Because <laughs> Saul had wanted to keep some of these things and he spared the king and so on. Well, Samuel ends up killing Agag, this king at that point. But one of the descendants of Agag, we later read about in the book of Esther, a man by the name of Haman. And you start to see a lot of things will start to tie together as we go through this this morning. How sin is so dangerous and so infectious. And because of this mistake in a sense that Saul made, because of this being merciful, and some of them obviously escaped and were allowed to live. As a result of that, one of them later almost destroys the whole of the nation of Israel single-handedly. Do you realize the danger? You know, sometimes we read these things, and a lot of the, the people in the world, I mean, Dawkins and, and so on, that they talk about genocide in the Bible and that God wiped out entire communities and how could a God of love do that kind of thing? Well, it's precisely because he's a God of love. We'll talk more in a minute about these nations and why there was such an issue and such a problem and why God wanted some of these nations destroyed. But that's one clear example that this individual was used certainly of Satan to try and stop the line coming down to the Messiah. Stop the nation of Israel that God had called into being for the express purpose, two purposes, one to give us his word, the written word, and the other one to give us the word made flesh. And that's what Israel were called as a nation to do, to be a witness to the world. And so Satan tried repeatedly to destroy the nation of Israel to stop God's plan. And people seem to be so oblivious of that. The battles we read about in the Old Testament... They're not just some haphazard uh, occurrences and, and just, just warring tribal factions. This is a real good versus evil struggle. And Satan was intent on trying to destroy Israel to stop the Messiah being born. Because he didn't want any one of us coming to know Jesus Christ. He didn't want any one of us to be saved. Satan just wants to take everybody to hell with him. Satan's going to hell, and by the way, as an aside, Satan does not rule in hell. We have this medieval picture, don't we, of Satan sitting in hell with his pitchfork on his little throne. Satan doesn't rule in hell. So, so hell is not Satan's home. It's the place of punishment that he will be sent himself. So where does Satan rule? Well, right now on earth. This is his kingdom. This is his throne. You know, in, in Luke 4, he offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world. For now, they have been given over to Satan. Right from the start, that's what Satan wanted. That's what caused the problem back in Genesis 3. Satan wanted this world. He sees God creating it. And just like that wonderful example we see in Esther with um, Haman and with Mordecai and so on, just as Haman had that pride, you know, well, who would the king want to honor except me? Well, Satan seemingly, from what we're told in Ezekiel and Isaiah, Ezekiel um, 28 and Isaiah 14, uh, just speak again of Satan's pride. Of Satan wanted to become like God, just as Adam had been made in the image and likeness of God. Satan wanted that position that Adam had been given, and he wanted the earth. Well, ultimately, he ends up with the earth for now. So again, you see coming from this, this line from Amalek, uh, all these problems and the issues that occur as we go through the rest of Scripture. And we're told that these are the sons of rule. So we're going over now over to the 
right hand side of the screen you can see we've got uh, uh, Nahath and Zerah Shama and Mizah, and you can mispronounce these at home if you want to later. Uh, and these were the sons of uh, Basimash, uh, sorry, Bashimath, uh, Esau's wife. So thus, that's that group over that side. And then we're told, and these were the sons of Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibian, Esau's wife, and she bare to Esau, the ones we've got listed there already, uh, Jewish, uh, Jalem, and Korah. So those are the, the ones that. Uh, mentioned her. So there's no, seemingly, there's no grandchildren uh, coming from that list, certainly none that are recorded. And then we're told that these were the dukes of the sons of Esau. So these individuals and the ones you can see there, the highlighted in yellow on the screen, the 14 we've just gone through, so the sons of Eliphaz, including Amalek, the sons of Ruel and uh, the uh, children of Holy Barma, those are the 14 that come from Esau that have some sort of political sway within the land. So they obviously have different areas that they look after. We're told again, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn, the son of Esau, Duke Timon, Duke Omer, and he goes through listing them all by name. You can see that. And again, verse 16, Duke Korah, Gatham, and uh, verse 17, again, just listing those names you've just seen there. And these are the sons of Ruel, Esau's sons, and just list those, So as you've just seen. So we go to verse 18, and these are the sons of Holy Barma, Esau's wife, that's the rest of those. And in verse 19, we're told, these are the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these are their dukes. So from Esau then comes this group of people that end up ruling in the whole area of Edom, and they each have a different territory that they're responsible for, that they look after. Now, change of gear. Because we're now going to be told something different. What we're being told is, in essence, where the wives that Esau took came from. We're going to give their background because they married not, again, into the, the family of Abraham. They married into the Canaanite uh, families. And so we're given a change of gear now. So let's follow this through. Verse 20. These are the sons of Aseah the Horite who inhabited the land. So this is the land now that Esau has gone and moved into. And we're now going to be told about this individual who lived there, inhabited, and we're now told about his sons. We're first of all told about Lotam, Shobel, uh, Zibian, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. Okay, so these are the, the seven sons that we're given of this individual Seir. And again, you know, the member of the area is referred to sometimes as Mount Seir. This is where it gets its name from this individual uh, who is this Canaanite um, uh, lord or ruler. Uh, that was in the in the area um, before Esau had got there and as they get there they meet these people and they've got seven sons and again these are the dukes of the Horites the children of Seir in the land of Edom and the children of Lotan and we're going to give his children now Horai and Heman and Lotan's sister was Timnah okay so seven sons and one daughter and again just to, to connect that dot uh, Timnah is the one who became Eliphaz's concubine that we just saw a few slides back so Eliphaz, again, he marries into this family. And the children of Shobah were these, Alvan and uh, Manahath and Ebal and Shepho and Ornam. And these are the children of Zibion, both Ajar and Anna. Uh, this was that Anna that found the mules in the wilderness. So if you were wondering, this is the one. Uh, as he fed the asses of Zibion, his father, uh, the children of Anna were these, Dishon and then, and Holy Barma, 
the daughter of Anna. So this is now another one of the wives that Esau marries. So we start to get the idea that he's marrying into this kind of political structure, these people that are, are ruling in the land. Okay, so again, the family of Aholibama, daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibian, the Horite, uh, and her name, as we saw already, means tender of the high place. So he's married into this, this local power structure. These are the children of Dishon, so now we're going to get some of their children uh, breaking down. Um, Hedman and Ishbon and Ithran and Shiran. The children of Ezar are these, uh, Bilhan and Zavan and Akan. The children of Dish, uh, Dishan are these, Uz and Aran. These are the dukes that came of the Horites, Duke Lotan, Duke Shobal, Duke Zibian, Duke Anna, uh, Duke Dishon, Duke Ezer. So these seven sons again, this is what we're saying, uh, Duke Dishan. Uh, these are the dukes that came of Horai among their dukes in the land of Seir. Uh, so again, the land is referred to sometimes as Eden. The land is sometimes referred to as Seir. We're talking about the same place, Eden, uh, sometimes just the land of Esau. The whole thing is just synonymous, one, one place. These are the kings that reigned in the land of Eden before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. So this is why later on, when we get to the time of Judges, towards the end, the people say, well, we want to be like the nations around us. They've got kings. They've got this structure already in place. We want to be like that. Now, it was always God's intention for Israel to have a king. God had already foreordained that David was going to be that king. And if we have time... In a moment, we'll show you that God had already foreordained back in Genesis. But you see, Israel jumped the gun, and they ended up with Saul. You see, Satan will always try and tempt us to take something that God has offered or is legitimate, but in a way that God has not prescribed. That's the way Satan does it. Often it comes out in the form of lust and in so many ways in life. So we want something, we think we need it, and we need it now. Well, Satan will use that. Sometimes something that is legitimate, but to obtain it in a way that is not. So, this is what we're told back in Deuteronomy, concerning this group of people that we've just been looking at. This area that we're looking at. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Emmons dwelt there in times past. A people great and many, and notice this, it's very important, and tall. Because a lot of people, when we look at these scriptures, will tell us that they were men of great stature. They were upstanding or respected in the community. Maybe true, maybe true. But what they forget or what they try not to highlight is the fact that these people were physically abnormally large. They were great and many and tall, as the Anakims. And notice this, which verse 11 says, which also were accounted giants, as the Anakims, but the Moabites, okay, it's another offspring, that's Lot's child through his daughter sordid, messed up situation as they come out of Sodom and Gomorrah and we find that Ammon and Moab are born to, to Lot of the Moabites, they call them Emims, Okay, and we're told then, the Horims and we've seen this now, also dwelt in Seir before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave them. So we're just given a bit of background information that Esau's moving into this geographical area. There's already this power system in place, but actually what's going to happen over a period of time now is that Esau's descendants are going to start to wipe out and destroy these giant beings that are inhabiting the land. 
But you see the problem we've already got? They've already started marrying into this group. Now, this may not, on the surface, seem like a big thing. But back in Genesis 6, we're told very clearly that the reason God sent the flood was because of a satanic plan to destroy God's plan. Satan decided that the best way to stop the Messiah coming was to corrupt the human race by genetically causing an issue, a problem, that was unresolvable. And of course what happens is that angels, angelic beings, fallen angelic beings, came, they took women of the earth, they had offspring, and those offspring become the giants that Scripture talks about. They're the giants that Greek mythology later takes, and the stories get, of course, elaborated. But so much of what we have from a... Uh, this has got twisted over the years through history and mythology, all has its root in Genesis 6. And we see the same thing going on now as we're getting into this chapter in Genesis where Esau is intermarrying into these groups of people. Well, bear in mind, the express purpose of these individuals being there, because we're told that those giants were there before the flood and also after. And after the flood, Satan specifically targets this geographical area because he knows that's where God has told Abraham his possession is going to be. And because of this, you see, God... Well, let's just, just, just move on. Because what we're seeing here is the devil trying to stop the seed of the woman coming down. Stop the Messiah being born. We just go on. In verse 32, And Bela the son of Beor reigned in Edom, and the name of the city was uh, Din Habah. And Bela died, and Joab the son of Zerah of Bozrah reigned in his stead, and Joab died, and Husham of the land of uh, Timony reigned in his stead. You just see a real tragic situation. We'll comment on this in a moment. Now, Hushi died, and Hadad, son of Bedad, who smote Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his stead, and the name of his city was Avith, and Hadad died, and Sal, uh, Samla of um, Masreka reigned in his stead, and so on. And Samla died, and so uh, we told him, and Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his stead, and Saul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his stead. Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and uh, Hadar reigned in his stead. And the name of his city was Pau. Uh, his wife's name was uh, Mehetibal, uh, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. What we see there is eight kings that were ruling, but there was no dynasty. There was no one king giving birth to a son who then sat on the throne and just carried on as a family as we see in many other nations. We just see a constant shifting of power, a real uh, mess in a sense. Uh, just uh, if uh, you want it, that's the, the list, and that's their names. Uh, if you look at the meaning uh, that we, we derive of their names, uh, destruction, desert, haste, mighty, garment, desired, Baal is gracious, <laughs> honor. <laughs> that's the list of these 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 kings that were reigning in the land. Again, these are not the descendants of Esau himself. These are the descendants of those that were in the land, and this is what happens as a result. There's nothing of any uh, lasting significance. These are the names of the dukes that came of Esau according to their families after their places by their names. Again, we're just going to recap Timnah, Alva, and Jether. We've seen these already. Uh, um, Holy Barma, uh, Elah, Pinon, Kenez, Timon, um, Mibsar, um, Magdal, Imran, and they're the dukes uh, of East Edom according to their habitations in the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. 
Okay, so some of his descendants become chiefs, none of them become kings. They're kind of close to power, but never in power. That's always what Satan does. He promises something, he never gives it. Um, in case you kind of had enough of these sorts of descendants at this point, we're going to see this list again is repeated in First Chronicles chapter 1. Um, it's uh, given before the descendants of Israel uh, in chapter 2. Interestingly, so the, 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 why does God give us this? Because we need to understand who these groups are, why it was that God allowed some of these groups to be destroyed and wiped out. Now, later we are going to see another important descendant of Esau who's going to show up. It will be Herod. Herod was an Edomite. Okay, we see that uh, play out later in Scripture, of course. So, he's an example of those who are blessed with knowing the truth of God. This is Esau but choose to follow the ways of the world. You see, Esau and his family end up kind of imitating the world in which they've moved into. And even though the political structure and so on is very much an emulation of the world. Um, but it becomes an idiom of foolish behavior later we see in Scripture. What's the conclusion of that? Well, for Esau, you know, there was no profit for him. There was no benefit in all of this. Um, do you remember he had 400 servants just that came out to meet Jacob? And we're told at that point that he had all he needed. But he had something very seriously lacking, and that was a relationship with God. He allowed himself to marry into, and his children to marry into the world. A world that was already corrupt, and already intent upon destroying God's plan, and seeing it destroyed. You know, when, when God talks to us about being separate from the world, Hopefully you start to see, just from these portions of Scripture, the glimpses of why it is so important. In First Thessalonians we're told that God's will for us is our sanctification. That we be set apart. And, and so many people, like Esau, think, oh, it doesn't matter. Is it really that important? Yes, it is really that important. Sin is such a serious business that it costs the death of God's Son to atone for our sin to make a way for us to be saved. You know, just as we see here, you know, Esau, you can gain the world, but you can lose your soul. And also, as we see with Jacob looking at Esau, and so, you know, the world can seem very intimidating, it seems to outnumber us. And the world can lure us and even make deals that seem attractive, but all it wants is to, to plunder us. We saw that last time with, with Shechem, we see the same kind of ideas here. Okay, just, we're going to fly through this chapter quickly. I think a lot of this is going to be very familiar with anyway. And this is just now starting to introduce us to Joseph. This is just incredible things we see just very quickly in this little glimpse. Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. So we're talking about 35 years now after Jacob's returned to the promised possession the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. Uh, again, on his journey, he's overcome Laban, he's confronted Esau, and he's wrestled with God. He's limping, but he's walking with God, which is a, a good place to be. Uh, Jacob, by the way, now is somewhere in the region of 105 years old. These are the generations of Jacob. Okay, so we know this already. But Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. The lad was with one of the sons of Bilhah. So he's one of his half-brothers. And with the sons of Zilpah, um, uh, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Ever had that when a child comes and tells you what the other children were doing? And of course, they always present it in a way that, you know, I wasn't doing anything wrong, but you know what they were doing? Well, this is the kind of thing that's going on. And Joseph, by the way, incidentally in Scripture, there is no sin recorded of Joseph. Now, that's to say that he's sinless, um, but Scripture 
because Joseph, as we'll see, is a type of Christ, um, Joseph is presented as being without fault. You know, evil doesn't like being exposed. You know, you, you, you see that with your children. One of your children says something about the other one, and the other one will try and defend themselves and explain why what they were doing was okay. And, you know, it's like a nocturnal creature suddenly exposed to sunlight. They don't like, like it at all. My spiders in my back garden, if you shine lights on them at night, any of these spiders, one of the ones that bit me a few weeks ago, uh, they, they kind of scurry away. You know, evil's just like that. It doesn't like being exposed. And of course, this is what happens here. Now, we're told in verse 3, Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colours. And when his brethren saw that their father had loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. They could not speak peaceably unto him. Like a parental issue going on here. Um, but this coat of many colours, just a couple of comments here. What was it? There's some various ideas. Um, some have suggested uh, that it was a coat of many pieces of different coloured material that have been put together, that have been very expensive and dyed and so on. Um, a coat uh, of authority, some think, that could have represented birthright and that Jacob was trying to suggest that Joseph uh, would be given the birthright uh, and so on, which again would have wound the brothers up. Um, Colin Dillich suggested it was a coat with long sleeves. Uh, some have suggested a seamless robe. There's various ideas um, as to what this actual coat was and what it symbolized. One of the interesting things that comes out from Scripture is that whatever the color and, and styling of the coat, it seems to have been a symbol of purity. Because actually we read in 2 Samuel that David gave to his daughters coats of many colors to represent their purity. And so that seems to be a very strong link as to what Jacob was doing and why Jacob was doing it. And again, that would have really riled the brothers because the implication was that Joseph was pure, he was right, he was good, and the others weren't. And it gets worse because then, verse 5, Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brethren and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and lo, my sheaf arose... And also stood upright, and behold, your sheaf stood round about, and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shall that indeed reign over us? <laughs> Come on, Joseph, you're 17 years old. Do you think you're going to rule over us? And shall that indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me, he worshipped me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come and bow down ourselves to thee and to the earth? And his brethren envied him. His father observed the saying. You know, it's interesting because Jacob immediately recognized the symbolism in this dream that the sun and the moon were speaking of Jacob and Leah in this context, and then obviously the, the 12 stars being, or sorry, the 11 stars being the, the brethren, all bowing down. And we see this picture come up again in Revelation 12. This woman that is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. And the woman already exists, she's just clothed with the nation of Israel for her protection. All these things tie in together. We've already been talking about how God was using the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah into this world, and Satan was doing everything he could to stop it. This is really just a, emphasizing the same point. Interestingly, the first dream was terrestrial. 
And it suggests that kind of ruling on earth. The second one, celestial, suggests ruling in heaven. Is there a lovely picture of Christ in there? I'll leave you to, to think through that. But Jacob, as I said, just clearly understands. And in Revelation 12, we see that same idea brought out again. Verse 12, and his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, and do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Interestingly, they've gone back to that place where they'd already caused a few problems, uh, but they end up going back up to the world, as it were. And uh, Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. And he said unto him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Interestingly, Joseph, as was said already in Scripture, is a type of Christ, a model in advance of what Jesus would be like. And there's listed over a hundred different ways uh, that, J- that Joseph prefigures Jesus. Uh, first of all, he was hated and rejected by his brethren, just as Jesus was. Joseph exposed sin, just as Jesus did. Joseph is clothed in this coat symbolizing righteousness. Of course, speaks of Christ. Joseph, we know, was beloved of the Father. So was Jesus. Joseph was sent of the Father into the world to seek his brethren and then to return to the Father. Again, speaks of Jesus. And we'll see many more as we go through. Uh, so the journey's going up from Hebron up to Shechem to try and find the brethren. And we read in verse 15, that a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, Well, they departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Joseph went after his brethren, brethren and found them in Dothan. So just a little to the left, uh, heading up towards the area of Mount Carmel uh, in uh, northern Israel, is where they find and they finally meet up. And we told in verse 18 that when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit, and we will say, Some evil beast has devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So Reuben has a plan to try and say to the brothers, let's put him in the pit and we'll leave him with the intention that later he could go back and rescue him. Okay, so Reuben, again, the oldest brother, maybe a bit more mature, a bit more sensible, just thinks, you know, we, we can't do this. Maybe as wound up by Joseph's dreams as the others, but realizes the, the danger of what they're proposing. It came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colours that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Seemingly what we've got here is this uh, uh, this pit, this water um, placed in the ground. Again, Simeon and Levi's plan was to kill him. Reuben's plan was to rescue him. Um, Judah's plan, again, uh, was to sell him. We'll see this in a moment. Uh, and Judas's plan in the New Testament was also to sell Jesus. You see a lot of parallels between these kind of ideas. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery, balm and myrrh, 
going to carry it down to Egypt. Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brethren and conceal his blood? Let's make some money out of this, shall we? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. It's a bizarre argument that he puts up, isn't it really? You know, let's not kill him ourselves. Let's just do a really good thing and, and sell him. Um, because then it, it won't be our fault. Um, this is strange. And there passed by Midianites, uh, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned unto the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes and returned unto his brethren and said, The child is gone, and whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed the kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent, uh, sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Don't know we whether it be the son's coat or not. In other words, I'm not sure whether this is Joseph's. Dad, what do you think? And he knew it. I said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. I wonder at this point how good the sons were feeling about themselves. Uh, they realized the truth of what's happened, but obviously none of them can say anything. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said... But I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. I just, just want to pause just for a second. You know, how much must it have grieved the father to see Jesus on the cross? You know, and how sometimes trivial we make sin. You know, the brethren, the brothers didn't think this through. They didn't think of the impact you know, and there is a, a parallel with the way that we view sin. We often see sin as being not that bad. Not realizing the cost to the Father. And sadly, we don't realize the impact that sin has in our own lives. You know, we think sometimes that what we do, it won't be seen by other people, or it won't have an impact elsewhere, but it does. Interestingly, 35 years earlier, Jacob had been part of a plot to deceive his own father with the skin of a goat. And now he's the victim of exactly the same type of scheme. And Jacob, at this point, seemingly has lost all hope. Galatians 6 verse 7 reminds us, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. You know, at this point, I don't think Jacob had any real idea of the bigger picture. I don't think he was looking to the future. He was just mourning the death of his son. But I wonder later, when he got down to Egypt, when he finally is reunited with Joseph and thinks back of all that had happened, and no doubt thinks of this day which would have stuck in his memory, I'm sure, of when these brothers came in with this blood-soaked skin his coat effectively you know wonder whether he thought back to that time when he deceived his own father what his attitude was at that point 
you know, he probably had no thought or concept those 35 years earlier of the repercussions that would would occur as a result of doing that. You know, we said at the time when we were studying way back in those chapters that God's plan wouldn't have been thwarted and Jacob said to Rebecca, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. That's deceitful. If I'm to receive a blessing, then I'll do it God's way. You know, Jacob could so easily have said that. And God would still have fulfilled his plan. You see, God had already foreordained that Jacob was going to be the one to inherit the blessing, to be given the land. It didn't have to go through that whole messy situation or that deception. You know, God sometimes in our lives will achieve his purposes through our mistakes, but that doesn't mean that he wants us to make those mistakes in order for him to achieve those purposes. God will find another way, a better way, if we just put our trust in him. I told him after, and the Midianites sold him into Egypt and to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and captain of the guard. I kind of want to do the next chapter, but we're not going to. We're going to stop there. Um, because the next chapter links in so much with what we've just seen in the next chapter which we'll, we'll look at next week if the Lord tarries we look at the failure of Judah something that occurs during this period of time whilst Joseph has now been taken off the family is in a very sad situation Jacob all very melancholy because of what he perceives to be the death of Joseph and Judah, as a young, probably around about 20-year-old, moves away. And he goes and finds a wife, just like Uncle Esau had done. A wife of the inhabitants of the land. And we see some things in the chapter that some people really struggle with. As God intervenes. But again, you have to understand, Satan... I use this expression, but it's hell-bent on stopping God's plan. On stopping the Messiah coming. Of course, we know that the line that would come down to the Messiah would come through Judah. Had not God intervened and Judah just been able to do what he wanted, the Messiah would never have been born. It's not actually 37, it's 38. But chapter 38 of Genesis is pivotal to God's plan. We'll look at it in more detail next week. Read ahead, read the chapter during this week if you can. And then uh, next week, I'm sure time will allow, we'll move on. And we'll start to look at the life of Joseph down in Egypt. It's just incredible testimony of somebody who did trust God. Despite incredible circumstances and things that were unjust and unfair. And we see the way that Joseph responds in those situations. Great lessons that we can learn for ourselves through that. So let's uh, bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Father, we thank you for, Lord, the reminder that you established a plan before the foundation of this world for your son to come into this world to be born as a baby. To be born as a human being. To live and to die for us. To pay for our sin. 
And Lord, forgive us if at times we forget or we allow the world to rob us of the reality of the horror of sin. Lord, over the next few days, this world will be celebrating all sorts of things that are inherently evil. And thinking, Lord, it's just a game without realizing the horror of sin. Without realizing the cost to you, Father God. So, Father, please help us to walk by faith, not by sight. Lord, not to allow the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life to draw our hearts and minds from you. Lord, if there are things in our hearts and minds now, if there are things in our lives that are not pleasing to you, if we've allowed sin a foothold, if we've not addressed it, if we've not dealt with it, then this morning, right now, Lord, we come before you knowing that you are faithful and just, that if we confess our sins, you will forgive us. And that once again, we can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, just as we see with Joseph clothed in that that coat seemingly to symbolize that purity. Lord, whatever we've done, whatever has happened in the past, it can be forgiven, it can be washed clean. But today can be a new day. Father, just as we see with those giant tribes, they had to be destroyed because of the threat they posed. It wasn't a physical threat, it was a spiritual threat. Lord, help us to be as brutal with the flesh life. Lord, not to allow it a foothold in our lives. But Lord, to seek you with our whole heart. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, your word says that we should be holy. Because you are holy. And Lord, again, we've commented recently, the holiness equates to happiness. That if we are holy, if we are living for you, if we are separated from the things of this world, it will bring joy. It will bring peace. It will bring the fruit of your spirit in abundance in our lives. So Lord, from this moment, help us just to cast off the unfruitful works of darkness. And Lord, just to seek you with our whole heart. To love the Lord our God with all our mind, our soul, strength. With all of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.